The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. Today we are beginning a new series, Two Words. It's a series that's going to carry us through the book of Galatians. Throughout the summer, we'll be taking week after week, um, just, just going through the book of Galatians, studying the words of Paul, that, that Paul writes to a church in order to help us get our words straight, to help us put some things in some right categories. Because what Paul understands is, is that when we make certain things clear, it helps us relieve the burdens where burdens shouldn't be placed and put our hope where our hope belongs. And so throughout the summer through July, we'll be spending time studying the book of Galatians and the two words that Paul helps make distinct as we understand the way God speaks to us. All of Scripture can be divided up into two words, law and gospel. Now, you can describe those words in a variety of different ways with a variety of different phrases. You could, you could describe it as the commands and promise. Um, you could say law and grace. You could say do versus done. But regardless of how you describe those words, all of Scripture can be divided up into these two categories, law and gospel. Now what's important about these two words is that both of these words are very good words. They are absolutely necessary for us as Christians. They are important words. They are good words. They are valuable words. But what's important to understand about these two words is they actually function very differently. These two words, while both being good words, have very different job descriptions. See, the law exists to show our sin. And so anytime we experience the law, the law being the commands of God. So when God says, do this or don't do this. When God reveals to us his standard, it reveals that there's a standard here, but you and I are somewhere down here. Right? And so what the law always does for us is it always shows our sin. It always reveals to us that we don't measure up to what God expects of us. And now the law is a good thing. It's calling us to good, important things, valuable things, what God's will is for us, what, how God desires for us to live. Yet while it, it does that good work, it is at the same time showing us something about ourselves. It's holding the mirror up to our life and saying, you're not as good as you thought you were. The gospel, on the other hand, the second word, always shows our Savior. And so while the law says do this, it's the gospel that says it's done. While the gospel says you don't measure up, while the law says you don't measure up, it's the gospel that says Jesus measured up on your behalf. It's the gospel that shows us Christ, the gospel that exposes us to the work, to the promises of God on our behalf. And so all throughout the scriptures we find these two words, law and gospel. The law saying do this, the gospel saying the work is finished. And so both of these words work in partnership with one another to point us to the work of Jesus. See, all throughout the scriptures we are shown these two words. If you could turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians chapter 1. If you're using the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 1000. 809. See, when Paul writes the book of Galatians, he's writing to a church with the the understanding that they've gotten these two words mixed up. 
that they have left words out. They have misapplied these words. They put words in their wrong categories. And so by, by misunderstanding the job descriptions of each of these words, they've, they've become a people that have put their hope in their own efforts, in their own obedience, and they have placed burdens and mixed burdens into the message of grace. But the problem Paul, Paul wants to express to them and help make clear to them is when we put things in the right categories, it will also put our hope where our hope belongs. See, while the law is all about what we must do and what we fail to do, the gospel is all about what's been done for us. And these two words, law and gospel, are routinely forgotten, confused, and misapplied. One author by the name of David Zoll writing about law and gospel in the, in the modern church, he said this. He said, Christianity now is in crisis, in large part because people have marketed it as a religion of good people getting better, when in fact it's a religion of bad people coping with their failure to be good. See, the statement comes out of, out of a misunderstanding of law and gospel. He says this because the church has largely misunderstood law and gospel. And so what people do when they misunderstand, when they misapply these two words, they begin to turn Christianity into a religion of good people getting better. And, and there's no surprise that that doesn't work. No, there's no surprise that people flock away from Christianity when Christianity is a religion of good people getting better because... We're failures at that. And, but instead, Christianity is a religion of bad people coping with their failure to be good, looking to the one who rescues us in the midst of our badness. And the church of Galatia that Paul writes his letter to has this very same situation that we have in our own world. They're, they're a group of people who have misunderstood, who have forgotten the message of grace. See, Paul's writing to a group of recovering Pharisees. What these re recovering Pharisees have as their background is they were, they were Pharisees, which means they were the upright, the moral. They, they were well known for their obedience to the laws of God. And so as recovering Pharisees that now, they, they, they've been rescued by the message of Jesus. Paul had preached to them the message of Jesus Christ, crucified and died and risen for them. But some point along their spiritual journey, they slip back into this way of thinking. And so they begin trying to reintroduce into the Christian faith, say, saying to people, all right, I get the grace thing, but let's talk about some ceremonies, some rituals, some traditions, some behaviors that we should add into grace, that we should add as requirements of salvation. And, and, and so what they do is they say, all right, grace is the entry point, right? Grace gets us in the door, but if you really want to progress in your spirituality, if you really want to get to the next level, it's ultimately about your obedience, your behavior. They, they see grace as the get-out-of-jail-free card, but the way God views you, the way, whether or not God is pleased with you, they would say is ultimately based on your behavior, not on what Christ has done. And so they have confuse these two words. And so Paul writes to this group of people, this group of people who have relapsed back into a law-based understanding of God. They've gone back, they've spiraled down into a relationship with God that is primarily based on what they do or don't do. And so, of course, what this ends up is it ends up leaving them strung out with no hope. Because when your relationship is based on the law, what you'll find is that you are burdened with nowhere to turn. 
And so Paul writes these words in Galatians chapter 1. He says this. He says, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers with me to the churches of Galatia. Now, this is a normal way to begin a letter at that time. It begins saying, from Paul to the churches of Galatia. This is how Paul begins and how he writes many of his letters. Now, what he does, though, that's interesting here, is he also spends a little bit of time going over some of his credentials. He he wants to make a little bit clear for the people who he is and why he's writing this letter. And he does this for a very specific reason. See, what Paul understands is what he's about to say is going to make the people uncomfortable. Because he's going to contradict some of the ways of thinking that they have, that they have begun to, to believe. He's going, he's going to, to contradict so, some of their understanding about God and their understanding about grace and God's law and what they exist for. And so he wants to make it very clear right up front why he's saying the things he has. See, what Paul's doing is Paul's making a defense of himself in order to make a defense of the gospel. Paul's defending his background so that when he writes the book of Galatians, the distinctions between law and grace are not seen as new ideas, but the very ideas of God. And so Paul does this. He says, he says okay, if, if, just in case you're going to have a problem, just know your problem's not with me, it's with the one who sent me. Because I've been sent, not from just a random group of people, but I've been sent by Jesus Christ. By God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. Just in case you're going to have some problems with the difficulty of my words. That my words are going to make you uncomfortable because it's going to challenge the way of your thinking. Just in case that's you, Paul says, well just know you're not upset with my words. You're upset with the very words of God. And so you can be upset, just don't be upset with me. And so Paul then writes his letter, and so he'll begin in verse 3. It's the 3 is the beginning of the body of his letter. And he says, grace... And peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to will of our God and Father. To whom be glory forever and ever. See, the way Paul starts this letter is beautiful because he begins grace and peace. See, what Paul does, right up front, he gets the thesis of his entire letter right in the very beginning. Paul lays his cards out on the table. So so just in case you're wondering what the whole book is about, and just in case you're wondering what the rest of the letter is going to point people to, Paul says it in the very first line. Grace and peace to you from from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul starts with the end in mind. And see, what Paul does then, as he makes these two words clear, as he speaks a word of law that convicts us and condemns us, and as he speaks a word of grace that points to the promise, the hope we have in Jesus, he speaks both of these words because the end goal of both is the grace and peace that comes in Christ alone. Both words, law and gospel, work towards the same end goal. See, you can't get to grace and peace without the law. Because with no law, there is no awareness of our own sin. There's no failure. There's no need for the Savior. So with, if you remove law, you also end up removing grace and peace. And if you remove the gospel, if you remove the promise, the work, 
the death and resurrection of Jesus, you also remove the, the gifts that are given in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Grace and peace. Both words, God's law and God's gospel, work to give to us grace and peace. The end is so that we might be given the grace and peace that comes only from our God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so Paul writes to this group of people who have begun to relapse back into this way of understanding God, that it's all about what they do. And see, Paul's words are very important for us too here, here today because what, what happens then for us is, is we, we have many of the same temptations that these recovering Pharisees do. See, because like the recovering Pharisees, the law is the default language that we learn. See, even if you're not a Christian, what, what you learn in the culture around you is, is it's about your performance. It's about your behavior. It's about, about what you do, how successful you are. And so even if you're not a Christian, the primary, primary way of thinking is a one-word way of thinking. It's about law. It's about behavior. And so while it might be a different morality or different rules, it's still do and do not. And so then the temptation is when the message of grace pulls you out of that, it's a countercultural message. Because nowhere else in our world is going to hand out grace freely. Nowhere else in our world says you're forgiven and it has nothing to do with what you've done. And then for those of us who, who are our Christians, the challenge then becomes for us is, is like the church of Galatia, many of us, the longer and longer we are in the church, the greater the temptation becomes to, to say, all right, let's move on from grace and peace. Let, 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 let's move beyond the cross thing. Let's move beyond the grace thing. Like, like grace, that's good, all right, I, I get it. It got me into the family, but now let's talk about what I need to do. See, many of us have treated grace and peace like it's the entry into Christianity, and it has nothing to do with the life of Christianity. We've treated grace and peace as though it's the get-out-of-jail-free card, but then it has nothing to do with the rest of our spiritual life. See, and so Paul writes to us confronting that way of thinking and saying, no, the end goal of the law is to lead you to repentance in order to put your hope in the cross. The goal of the gospel, the proclamation of what Jesus does for you is to give you grace and peace. Grace and peace is the goal. In 1501, a young man began destroying a piece of marble. He took hammers and knives, cutting and carving into the piece of marble, leaving debris all over the floor. Now, normally this is a bad idea, right? Normally, taking valuable marble and, and bringing forces of destruction on it, normally that's not a good thing. You don't want valuable pieces to end up being swept away, thrown in the trash. Unless, unless it's done by the hands of an artist. See, but because then, when done by the hands of an artist, that destruction, that cutting, that carving, that hammering, does not exist for the end of the destruction. It actually exists for making something new. In Ephesians chapter 2, the scriptures t say, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. One of the tools in the belt of the master artist 
is the word of the law. And so it cuts and it carves and it hammers away, knocking pieces to the ground. No, so that, that's a work when we, need, when we experience it, when we experience that work of the law on us. Right? It's a painful work. We can feel that. We can feel the confrontation. We can feel the condemnation. We can feel it revealing things about ourselves that we aren't happy with, that don't measure up. But the work of the law is doing a work, but it's doing a work not ultimately to leave the pieces on the ground, but to make something new. At times that law is like a hammer and it swings swiftly and and it swings strongly. And what it does is it attacks you. Right? It shatters the self-made images that you've made of yourself, revealing that you're not as good as you thought you were. It smashes your pride and your arrogance. It challenges your way of thinking. Other times, it's like, it's like the gentle wooden mallet, tapping away, smoothing out the rough edges. Still revealing your sin, but by, but by doing it more gently, asking you questions like, Am I loving? Should I have said that? What, what, would, what would Christ call me to do? Now, both ways are still the work of law. Both, both works knock the pieces to the ground. An example of something like that would be, if I were to say to you, be a better husband. Now, there, there's no question that that's a good statement, right? Like, no, nobody would disagree that, that we should want men to be better husbands. No question about that. That's a very good thing. But when I say that, that is a law statement. That's a command. That's a, a do this. And what happens when we speak a word like be a better husband is it immediately causes a certain response because of the job description of the law. Because what the law does is it shows our sin. And so what what be a better husband will communicate to you is that the kind of husband you are is not the kind of husband you should be. right? Because you might be a good husband, but be a better husband still says it's not good enough. And it's pointing to good things. It's pointing to God things that God might want for you and your family. But what the law does is it makes an accusation. And so it says you're not, you're not doing what you should be doing. Now at times that will hit you hard. It will be like a punch to the chest. Because you'll recall the conversation you just had last night. And you'll think, I, I screwed that one up. Or you'll be filled with regret because you'll look at your own, your own family and be like, all right, I, I, I failed. And so you feel the hammer smash away at the way you've looked at yourself. No, at other times it will gently nudge you and, and just say, all right, well, when's the last time you said I love you? Or, or should you have said you're sorry? See, what that law does, though, is it exposes us. But the reason the law always exposes us is not to leave the pieces on the ground. In 2 Corinthians chapter, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The new comes with the passing of the old. See, as the law 
crushes us and leaves debris on the ground. It's the gospel that makes us new. That out of the debris, it's the gospel that makes a new creation. And so as the law convicts and condemns and exposes us, it's the gospel that has the power to make us new, to call us children of God, that redeems and rescues us. See, the goal isn't the pieces on the ground. The goal is the new creation. The goal is what the gospel does in us. The goal is the grace and peace that makes us new. The grace and peace that calls us forgiven, redeemed children of God. The death that comes at the hands of the law is followed by the resurrection that comes in the beauty of the gospel. See, when Michelangelo began cutting into the piece of marble in 1501, it wasn't for the sake of the destruction. It was for the statue that would come years later. the, The purpose of the tools and the destruction and the debris was so that a new creation would come up out of it. That a statue of King David would come that no one saw. See, the law isn't the end goal. The end goal is the grace and peace that gives us new life. That's the problem that the church of Galatia has. They've turned the law into the goal. And so as the law says a good thing, they've made it the main thing. And so people end up being crushed, being burdened, having their consciences tormented by the law because what they are told is, all right, you've heard about the whole Jesus thing, but if you really want to be a Christian, here are the things you need to do. Here are, here are the behaviors that you need to get right if you want God to be pleased with you. And so they make grace the entry point, but they don't make it the whole of the Christian life. And so Paul addresses their problem. And their problem is our problem. See, because how often have we treated our life, our relationship with God, as though it were more on us than it were on him? As though it's more about what we do for God than what God does for us. Grace and peace is the goal of both words. Now, does does God want our behavior? Yes. Does God want good obedience? Does God want us to live with, like, like with lives of morality? Absolutely. But without grace and peace, the best result that you will get is a begrudging submission to rules. Without grace and peace, the very best that you'll get is an external obedience that, that does not have a heart after God. See, this is, this is the problem that Jesus always has with the Pharisees. And this is, this is what Paul's addressing with writing to, to the church of Galatia. Because external obedience is ultimately what God's not, not what God's after. He's after our hearts. If I were to buy a gift for my wife and said, all right, the reason I did this for you is just I'm obligated. Right? That's my responsibility as a husband. Is that what she wants? No, she wants my heart. See, God's... God desires obedience, yes, but he doesn't want a begrudging submission to the rules. He wants a joy-filled obedience, which is only possible by the grace and peace of Jesus. 
He wants lives that glorify him in all that we say and do, which is only possible by the grace and peace of Jesus. See, the word of the gospel exists to give us freedom. By the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are freed from our sins. We are freed from the power of sin, and we are freed to obey. And the freedom that we experience from grace and peace is the freedom that says that grace is given to us freely, and it doesn't depend on what you do. Grace gives the forgiveness of sins. That in the death and resurrection of Jesus, he gives you everything that you need. And so what we find in the book of Galatians is that Paul will go after this over and over and over again. Grace, grace, grace. And even when he then talks about our behavior, even when he then talks about our obedience, it's with the understanding that it's by the power of grace and peace that we're even able to do these things. It's a book that's centered on grace. With the understanding that all of the Bible is a book that is centered on grace. In fact, as a church, we've always been a church that has been centered on grace. This is why when we gather together, this will be the predominant theme that we will hear. We'll hear it as we study Galatians. You'll hear it every week when you gather together. Because grace is the predominant theme of the messages, of the singing, of our conversations. Because it's only by the power of grace and peace. That we are made new. In Romans chapter 5, Paul writes, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. See, when we confuse and misapply these two words, law and grace, we don't have that hope. Because when we don't put the words in the right categories, we begin to treat law as though the law determines where we stand with God. And we treat grace as though it maybe is the get out of jail free but nothing more. But if you eliminate one, you eliminate the other. If you eliminate the law, there is no awareness of sin. There is no need for a savior. And if you eliminate the gospel... You eliminate the very person who gives to you grace and peace. The one who forgives every sin. And the moment anyone tells you something differently, then the love, the grace, the forgiveness that Jesus wants to give to you, be reminded that Jesus speaks a word of grace and peace to you. No, I'm not talking about a voice that, that speaks the law of God and says, all right, repent, believe the good news. Right? Because, because the voice of God will confront you, it will condemn you, it will say, here's where you failed. But the end goal is always to point you back to the cross. And so any voice that speaks a word of condemnation, any word that speaks in opposition, that ultimately exists to pull you away from the cross of Jesus is a voice that needs to be shut up by the voice of God. When Jesus gives you grace that forgives all your sins, he also gives to you a peace that quiets the voices that pull us away. See, we live in a world that is full of voices speaking against us. 
And from the very beginning of creation, Satan spoke a voice in opposition to God. Before sin ever even enters the picture, Satan begins saying, All right, did God really say? And he speaks a word meant to pull people away from God. Everywhere we turn, Satan is speaking in voices that pull us away from the cross. Trying to pull us away from the peace that comes in Christ alone. Voices that say things like, well, it's not enough. It's a voice that, that Satan will speak to us, and maybe even at times sounds good. Like it sounds like there's something to it. And so we'll begin to believe about our own behavior, right? It's, my behavior is not enough. So, so if only I do a little bit more, if only I get a little bit better, if only I fix this situation in my family, if only I get those things right, then it will be enough. Then I can be at peace with where God wants me to be. Or we think of the things that we have. If only I have a little bit more. If only I make a little bit more money or get the better position. If only my relationships are a little bit happier. If only that happens, then I can be at peace. Because then it will finally be enough. But that's not a voice of God. Because any of us who have listened to that voice have also experienced that moment where you finally get those things and realize it's still not enough, is it? Because there's always more to do. You always need to be a little bit better. You always need to make a little bit more, have a little bit more. Right? The peace never comes because it's never enough. That's not the voice of God. That's the voice of Satan. See, what God speaks to you in those moments is that I have everything you need. And I give it to you. Or we hear the voice that says, this is who you are. It's a voice that, that t- tries to get us to attach the things we do to the way we understand who we are. To attach what we do to our identity. And so it will point out our flaws, it will point our sins and say, all right, those sins, those things you said or did, that's who you are. It will point out an experience, that something that happened to you and say, that, that moment, that experience, that sin that was done against you, that's what defines you. Or it will take good things. It will try to make those good things identity things. And so it will say, All right, your job, your career, that's who you are. Your worth and your value is found in what you do. Or your role as a parent or a spouse, that's who you are. That's why you matter. That's the value you have. Some of you have even come face to face with the failures of that voice because you've had the situation where you tried to get that job that you thought would give you what you wanted, that you thought would mean that you have the worth or value you were looking for and and you didn't get the job. And then you were forced to deal with, well, what does that say about me? Or you had the situation where you had the job and, and, and then the moment you lost the job, you were confronted with, well, now who am I? I don't have the job. I can't provide for my family the way I did. And so what does that say about who I am? Or as a parent, you experienced the, the changing seasons of your life. And, and, and so as your, kids began, as your kids moved out of the house, you were forced to deal with the question of, all right, now that my kids don't need me in the same ways, what does that say about who I am? See, any of us who have believed 
that voice, understand the failures of it. Because then we're never who we want to be. The voice of God gives us an identity that is secure in the person and work of Jesus. Our culture is full of voices. Right? Everywhere you turn, you'll find magazines or, or stories or, 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 or on TV or on the internet. What you'll find is time after time, there are these expectations that the culture has. And what those do is it's a law that burdens us. See, many of us may not think of the culture as being a law-based culture. But if you think about it, our, our culture is, is pushing a do more, be better and so it may, be, it may be different morality or different rules, but the culture has these expectations that bear down on us, that burden us. And so we hear these voices that tell us, That's, you're not successful, you're not measuring up. That's, you're not good enough. I think there's no better example of this than moms. Now, if you're not a mom, I'm asking you to do a little bit more work. I think this applies in any situation, in any sphere of our life. It can apply in our families, our schools, our workplaces. But I I want to use moms as an an example because I think it's a very clear example in our culture. And and it's an example that that most of us know a mom. And so what culture does, though, for moms is there there is this weight of expectations that will crush a mother. Like, like Think about the moms that you know. Has any mom ever said, you know what, I'm just killing this mom thing. And I, and I mean that in the positive, thi- positive way. Like, has any mom ever thought, you know what, I've got the mom thing nailed. Like, I have no questions about how I'm doing as a mother. Like, I know my kids are obedient the way I want them to be. My kids, I, I'm confident in their spiritual life. Like, I know I taught them well. They, they know the scriptures. They're, not gonna, they're never going to leave the church. Like, I know that I've nailed the motherhood thing. Like, no questions. Like, has any mom ever, like, did that inner evaluation and felt like, you know what, I've got this. Like, you know what, no problem. No. Because, because, because every mom has this voice inside of her and thousands of voices around her saying, saying the same thing over and over again. And it's the law. And it says to her, you're not good enough. And every mom has these moments where she believes that. And, and then what, the, and then what the, the mom does is she's like, all right, I'm not good enough, so, so what do I do? And, and now in our culture, like, they're, 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 these more and more burdens begin put on her. And so, and so she, she, she tries to figure out, all right, what do I do? What do I do that I'm, I'm not good enough? And so she listens to these voices. And so there are these voices that say, um, for, for the young women who aren't moms and can't be moms and, and are dealing with that, they, they feel these burdens of culture that say, all right, you need to be a mom while they're re- dealing with, well, I'm not a mom. Or there are these burdens for the moms who are trying to take care of their kids and the culture will put on these expectations that you need to be a full-time career woman and a stay-at-home mom at the same time. And so the career woman moms are burdened because they don't have the time and the stay-at-home moms are burdened because they're not, they're not pursuing their, their work and their passions in, in, a, in, a, in a vocational career field. And then the mom turns to the internet to, to get some advice for her kids. And then what she's told is law, law, law. Here's how you vaccine your kids. Here's how, you're, how you need to help your kids sleep. Here's how you make your kids behave the right here. Here's how you're supposed to raise them spiritually. Do, do, do. And what it leaves a mom is with burdens and feeling like I can't do it. 
everywhere around us, every one of us know, understands that experience. Because there are expectations on all of us. And that voice is not the voice of God. Because the voice of God doesn't crush you. The voice of God, when you are crushed by your burdens, it raises you up. It gives you new life. The voice of God relieves those burdens. And then there's that voice that becomes really hard for us to discern. It's the voice when Satan disguises himself as the voice of God. See, what Satan will do, he's crafty, so he will say things that God would say. He'll, say, he'll point out sins that God actually believes are sins. See, see that, that's the crafty thing about Satan, because what Satan will do, see, God will reveal to you our, your sin so that you repent and turn to the cross. But what Satan will do is, is when you have repented and have clung to the cross, Satan will bring up those same sins and will keep pushing it. He'll bring up the sins that God has said, I remember them no more. He will place burdens on you in hopes that he will bury you and drown out the voice that says to you that you're forgiven. See, all of these voices are all around us, speaking to us, trying to pull us away from the grace and peace that's given to us in Jesus. What's the voice that's speaking to you the loudest today? What's the voice that you keep believing that's not the voice of God? In the moments that you need it the most, Jesus speaks a word that silences the accusers. The voice of God speaks to you what you need. And he speaks a word that deafens your ears to the voice of any voice that pulls you away from the cross. And so when Jesus then silences any accusations, he then speaks in a gentle voice to you. Your sins are forgiven. He says, I love you. He says, I'm proud of you. I am pleased with you. He says, I love the person you are, not the person you wish you were. That's grace and peace. And Jesus gives us that grace freely through his life, by his death and his resurrection. And he speaks that hope to us and quiets any voice that speaks against us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your two words, your words of law that convict us, that reveal to us our sin in, in order to point us to you. We thank you for your word of the gospel, that you reveal us yourself, that you speak to us the hope 
It's found in your death and your resurrection, the hope that our sins are truly forgiven. And so we ask that you continue to speak to us in the midst of all the different voices that we hear, the voices that we struggle to not believe, that you speak to us. That you give to us a grace that forgives every sin. And that you give to us a peace that quiets the voices that speak against us. Remind us of that hope that we have in you alone.